0: I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we speak with Kwan Win and Diana Doe about persistent macular edema.
1: Look at how many of them have persistent macular edema, and how many of them have had macular edema that has resolved. The findings were quite astonishing and different.
0: First, this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The
1: person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep.
0: Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on the system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. We know that diabetic patients with poor glycemic control are at greater risk for diabetic retinopathy, but how often has this happened? a patient comes to your office with substantial retinopathy but insists that his serum glucose is within the normal range. Of course, this is not inconsistent because serum glucose is an instantaneous measure, a snapshot, and we can no more assess glycemic control from a finger stick than we can assess climate from a single temperature reading. HbA1c fluctuates more slowly than serum glucose and is more representative of a patient's glycemic climate. Quan Wyn and Diana Doe investigated the relationship between HbA1c and recalcitrant clinically significant macular edema. I asked Diana to refresh the memories of ophthalmologists long out of medical school about what HbA1c is.
2: According to the American Diabetes Association, people with diabetes mellitus should monitor their blood glucose through two ways. Number one, self-monitoring of blood glucose through, per se, finger stick checks. And number two, regular monitoring through hemoglobin A1c. The question is, what is hemoglobin A1c? Hemoglobin A1c is a measure of a person's glycemic control over the preceding two to three months. It is a number usually represented as a percentage between 5% and can go as high as 16% or 20%. Ideally, the lower the number, the better. Often, many patients with diabetes only understand the concept of self-monitoring through finger sticks. And a lot of patients with diabetes do not understand the concept of hemoglobin A1C. We believe hemoglobin A1C is a more accurate reflection of glycemic control because it averages a person's blood glucose over the preceding two to three months and gives a better indication of the fluctuations that can occur over uh, several months. And that's why for our study, we looked at hemoglobin A1C because we thought that would be a more consistent marker to indicate to us if hemoglobin A1C was associated with persistent diabetic macular edema.
0: Juan, can I get you to describe the design of the study?
2: Often, the
1: diabetic mellitus is stable systemically, yet the eye disease, the diabetic retinopathy, still persists. Based on previous study, we do not have a closed monitor way in order to indicate at what level of hemoglobin A1C I should discuss with my colleague in internal medicine and endocrine so that the macular edema can be in better control. We decided to set out a study to answer that question, at least help us to begin to look at this question, we retrospectively look at the number of patients who have come to our clinic between a 2 years period and to then look at how many of them have persistent macular edema and how many of them have had macular edema that has resolved. So then we look at the two different groups with AMAS control Look at the patient with persistent macular edema and one that have macular edema that resolved. We try to correlate with the hemoglobin A1C level within the three month period of time at the time at which the persistent macular edema or the resolved macular edema is detected. And subsequently, during the analysis, we looked at the various range of hemoglobin A1c, the number of laser that was needed between bilateral disease and unilateral diseases. And then we also looked for the presence of other risk factors, such as hypertension, for example, among the two groups.
0: Quan, in the retrospective study, how large were the two populations? The population of uh, patients with the recalcitrant CSME and the uh, population with CSME that that did not persist?
1: So in our study, there were 92 patients or 152 eyes with persistent recalcitrant diabetic macular edema, and 32 patients or 56 eyes would resolve macular edema.
0: Were the demographics for the two populations similar? Were were they you know similar rates of hypertension? Age uh, gender much. splits. Yeah.
1: Yes, among the two groups, they, they were quite similar. There were 66% women in the persistent group and 66% women in the resolved macular edema group. The median age was 68 in in the persistent group and 73 in the resolved group. And that was not found to be statistically different, significant in the difference between the age, so pretty much the same. Uh, in addition, 92% of the persistent macular edema group has hypertension and 91% of those that have resolved macular edema has hypertension. We thought that even though the number of uh, patients with persistent macular edema in the study was almost three times as much as those without persistent macular edema, the demographic and the distribution in age, sex, and other risk factors as hypertension were quite similar between the two groups.
0: Let me ask this next question to Diana. Prior to to this study, was there evidence that HbA1c levels were, were correlated with diabetic retinopathy?
2: Yes, there is evidence in the published literature that hemoglobin A1c is correlated to diabetic retinopathy. In fact, there have been two landmark studies. The first study is the Diabetes Control and Complications trial. In this study of type 1 diabetic persons, the study investigators showed that intensive management of hyperglycemia, as demonstrated by a reduction in the hemoglobin A1c to 7%, is associated with decreased rates of development and progression of retinopathy. In the second study that I mentioned, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, or the PDF, involved type 2 diabetic patients. This study showed that intensive control of blood glucose, represented by reducing the hemoglobin A1c to 7%, resulted in a 25% risk reduction in microvascular endpoints. So both studies showed that reducing hemoglobin A1c decreases the rate and development or progression of retinopathy.
0: Back to you, Kwan. What in this study defined recalcitrant CSMA?
2: the definition
1: that we use to define persistent or recalcitrant clinically significant macular edema include examination by contact lens biomicroscopy and fluorescein angiography that indeed show the presence of macular edema the term recalcitrant in this case is defined that in type of macular edema and patient who has had at least two focal laser photoagulation performed according to the ETDRS guidelines. The patient must also have had the last laser at least three months before the time at which he or she was diagnosed with persistent macular edema. In other words, the patient should have macular edema at the time of enrolling in the study, but also he or she must have at least two lasers performed in that eye prior to the time enrollment, and the last laser must be at least three months before the enrollment time.
0: Can you tell me then, on examination uh, and in history, how the patients with resolved CSME presented as compared to those with recalcitrant CSME?
1: At the time of examination, based on Contact lens biomicroscopy, and we do stress the use of contact lens biomicroscopy because that will allow us to best visualize and evaluate the macular thickening and the presence of other evidence for macular edema. In the group that was found to have resolved macular edema, clinical examination with contact lens biomicroscopy did not show any evidence that would have suggest the presence of clinically significant macular edema. Again, based on a clinical diagnosis. At the same time, fluorescein angiography uh, was performed in some cases and again did not show the evidence of leakage that would suggest the presence of macular edema. I have to say that this study was performed as a retrospective study, so therefore we only looked at the examination that has been done in the previous time, but the time of January 2002 and 2004. At that time, optical coherent tomography, or OCT, was not well used in the clinical settings. We did not use any OCT criteria to make or not make the diagnosis.
0: Can you tell me what your findings were? Was there a difference in the HbA1c levels between the, the patients with recalcitrant CSME and uh, those with resolved CSME?
1: Yes. Uh, the finding were quite astonishing and difference, just as we expected. The median hemoglobin A1c among those with persistent macular edema was 8.7% with a range from 5.3 to 15.6%. While the median hemoglobin A1c among those with resolved macular edema was only 6.6% with a range of 5.3 to 9.7%. And the p-value for the difference was quite small, 0. 0.0005, illustrating that the difference was quite statistically significant. We also looked at the patient with persistent macular edema and then also asked the question: what about persistent unilateral macular edema versus persistent bilateral macular edema? In in patients, those that have only one eye with persistent macular edema versus those with bilateral persistent macular edema. The hemoglobin A1c was 8.5% as a million among the patient with persistent unilateral maculodema, versus a million of 8.9% among those with persistent bilateral maculodema.
0: So not only was there a significant difference between those patients who had recalcitrant CSME and those who didn't. Uh, obviously, with the recalcitrant group having a higher percent of HbA1c, uh, but there was also a relatively higher level in HbA1c levels for patients with bilateral recalcitrant CSME as, as opposed to those who had pathology in just one eye.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Diana, is there evidence in this context that lowering the HbA1c levels helps?
2: Our study looked at levels of hemoglobin A1c in patients with either recalcitrant diabetic macular edema or resolved diabetic macular edema. Although there is no published prospective study that evaluates whether lowering hemoglobin A1c will decrease the rate of recalcitrant diabetic macular edema, we could only extrapolate from previous studies such as the DCCT or UK PDS studies to infer that lowering hemoglobin A1c or having tighter glycemic control will help decrease the rate or severity of retinopathy. The DCCT study did look at the risk of macular edema, and in that study, tight glycemic control resulted in reduction of the risk of macular edema by 23%. That study did not look at people with persistent or recalcitrant macular edema. So although our study shows that a higher hemoglobin A1C may result in persistent macular edema, we cannot know for sure if lowering the hemoglobin A1C will resolve the persistent macular edema. We suspect that it might, but a prospective study will need to be conducted to truly answer that question.
0: Based on this study, are there recommendations that you have for ophthalmologists?
1: I think that's the point that I really like to to communicate with the ophthalmologists and, and, and also with the internists and the endocrinologists. And that is in this study, at least even though it's a retrospective study, we have noticed that among those with persistent macular edema, seventy four percent of them have a hemoglobin A one C greater than seven point five percent. In my experience thus far. Often, patient with hemoglobin A1C just above 7.5% is usually considered by the internist or the endocrinologist to be relatively stable if the nephropathy and, and or the neuropathy is stable. However, I'm making a, a, a request out there that for patients with persistent macular edema, perhaps the ophthalmologist, uh, can then communicate with the primary care provider or the internist or the endocrinologist to perhaps try to provide even tighter control uh, for the patient so that the hemoglobin A1C can be lower, even further uh, be below the level of 7.5%. Now, obviously, everything needs to be done in the context of the patient and to see if the patient can tolerate this low level. So I do not necessarily recommend drastic and rapid um, immediate reduction down to that level, but rather to use that as a target, at the end point for which the effort of the physician and the patient can target at that point. In other words, to try to get to as close at that point as possible, of uh, 7.5% uh, or less.
0: This study was a retrospective study. Do you guys have plans to do a similar study, but a, 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 as a prospective study?
1: Yes, we are planning. It's actually, we are planning at there's a, um... As a multi-center trial, but uh, you can see the the cost that will be associated with just study would be quite tremendous because one would then um, look at a perspective to try to see how tight and the control is, and then to follow the patient over a number of years. And so we are uh, planning such a project uh, in our multi-center, but that will be depending on uh, whether or not we can obtain government funding because obviously it's, it's going to be an expensive trial to to evaluate all that aspect. In the meantime, we can also um, entertain the question of whether we can do this, but even a bigger retrospective study, which may still add some more information to this uh, regard. With the next study, we can also perhaps look at other risk factors that uh, that Diana and, uh, and, and I and other, uh, in this paper have begun to entertain.
2: I think the other risk factors that are important and should also be included in future studies Um, Include the measure of person's hypertension control, uh, hypercholesterolemia, evidence of diabetic renal disease, congestive heart failure, and um, perhaps even long-term measures of um, the hemoglobin A1c to look over a longer time period uh, to truly evaluate if changes in hemoglobin A1c, such as a reduction in hemoglobin A1c, will help patients with chronic diabetic macular edema. Um, resolve their macular edema if the hemoglobin A1C were to be lowered over a period of time. So I think a prospective study is something that we would like to accomplish, um, but certainly we'll have to consider all these important comorbidities um, when we plan this study, because each one of those factors that I mentioned um, can also contribute to progression of diabetic retinopathy.
1: I think that we, we really would like to suggest that uh, any ophthalmologists who deal with uh, diabetic eye disease uh, may consider becoming very familiarized with this concept of hemoglobin A1C and sort of like keep a vision and eyes for it because I think it does help in the overall management for the patient. When a patient thought to need multiple sessions of laser and other treatments such as individual steroid injection or whatever modality that the physician begins to initiate for the patient because of the persistent macular edema, perhaps then uh, glycemic control should then be evaluated to determine whether or not that can play a role in the management of the disease because certainly unless the underlying disease, in this case diabetes, is under control, uh, one should not just expect that anything done locally will be able to control or resolve the macular edema, which is due to a more generalized cause.
2: I think the study is also important because it reminds us that we should communicate with each other um, using hemoglobin A1c as a means of monitoring a person's glycemic control. Often as physicians, we ask patients, how are your blood sugars? And usually they respond, you know, doctor, it's doing well. My blood sugar was 100 this morning and it was 92 yesterday. And a lot of patients and physicians are satisfied with that answer. However, I think if a single finger stick blood glucose is not an accurate reflection of a person's glycemic control. And I think A better question would be, what's your hemoglobin A1C? I think besides having physicians or ophthalmologists more acquainted with the concept of hemoglobin A1C, we also need to help educate our patients, especially the ones with diabetic retinopathy, about hemoglobin A1C. So they are more active in their uh, understanding of their disease process. Often patients do not know what the concept of hemoglobin A1C means. I think patients with diabetes need to understand hemoglobin A1c so they can better take care of themselves. We also have conducted a study, a prospective one, to look at whether patients seen at a tertiary retina clinic understand what hemoglobin A1c is. And of the patients we surveyed, uh, which was over 100 patients, only 50% of them knew what hemoglobin A1c was. And the majority of these patients actually had advanced diabetic retinopathy. So I think what's key is education. And I think both physicians and patients need to be educated on hemoglobin A1C, which will help us take care of patients with eye disease and with macular edema.
0: Diana, Kwan, thank you very much. Thank you yeah, for the
2: opportunity. Sure, no problem at all. Thank, good. Okay. thank,
1: thank you. Good night. good night.
0: Bye-bye. Kwan Nguyen is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Diana Doe is a vitreoretinal fellow in the same department. Their paper, Persistent Diabetic Macular Edema, is associated with elevated hemoglobin HbA1c, appears in the April 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Ask questions of Dr. Nguyen or Dr. Doe or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the beginning of a conversation in which you can participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646 231 In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JayoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.